you know, as the older you get, uh, your your circles of impact start growing up. You know, start growing larger and larger. You know, when you're when you're a kid, you have your classmates, your neighbors, you have people that immediately interact. When you get married, towards the twenties, you have your in-laws, you have uh, kids, then you've got a work life, etc. But as you get older in life, as an entrepreneur, you deal with regulators, markets, customers, investors, stakeholders, and your ability to to straddle all of this. Uh, posed a challenge and a very uh, and a very uh, delightful one at that, you know, and I liked it. Hi, wherever you're listening to us, I hope you're staying safe and doing well. Welcome to Forbes India's The Startup Fridays, a weekly conversation with accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and other folk who are doing significant work in India's startup ecosystem. You can find a new episode every Friday evening. You can see us live on Instagram every Friday morning. I'm Hari Arakli, and my guest today is Ajit Isaac, founder and executive chairman of Quest Corp. Ajit's career started uh, just as India's economic liberalization was uh, beginning, and he had a stellar corporate career before he turned entrepreneur, and the first in his family, if I understand that correctly. And uh, he built two large HR companies, uh, the second of which is still running and growing, uh, and, and it's a well-known listed company as well, Quest Corp. Earlier on in his career, Ajit was a British evening scholar. And his career is that uh, rare combination of entrepreneurial spirit and uh, corporate leadership that uh, every aspiring uh, startup founder today would love to have. So Ajit, uh, welcome to the show and fantastic uh, to have you here this morning with us. Thank you, Hari. All right. So to, to get us started, uh, let's jump right in. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, uh, Quest Corp, what it is uh, today, one of the largest uh, staffing companies in the world. Tell us a bit about it and we'll go from there. So Quest Corp originated as IKEA Human Capital Solutions, essentially as a staffing company. And that's that was the core of our business. But over time, that business has morphed from being a human resources company to being a business services entity. And we're going through what we call the third version of evolution of Quest right now. So we're about 15 years old. Every five years or so, there's been a, a, a systemic change in the way we run the company and what we look at. So the first five years were really about building a human resource company with a bit of facilities thrown in. Uh, it was also the phase where we raised private equity. We had an investor, an Indian private equity fund, which we replaced with Fairfax in the year 2013. And then after that, we went for an IPO in 2016. And then thereafterwards, we transformed ourselves into a business services enterprise. So as a staffing company, we're among the top 50 in the world. We're about, actually at about 48, but by headcount, will be in the top five in the world. So we're one of the few companies that are in the global sweepstakes, so to say, or the pecking order in their industry standings worldwide. Uh, as a business services enterprise also will be among a top 10 company in the world by headcount level. And we think that we have the potential to get to among the top three uh, in the next, let's say, five years time. Our company, uh, we, which we listed in 2016, had revenues then of about 3,000 odd crores, 3,435. In fact, we we closed last year with about 10,800 odd crores. And um, uh, we listed at about 500 rupees. We issued shares at about 317. Today, we are at about, you know, give or take a little bit, we are maybe close to about 700 odd. So if you take a VWAP of ours uh, over the last six months, our compounded annual growth rate on our share price has been about 20% versus about 15% for the index for the same period. So that's sort of the summary of our company. You know, evolution from a staffing services company to being a business service enterprise. 
with a sort of global positioning now in terms of size, scale, and ambition. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that scale. You already mentioned by headcount, fifth largest. Uh, give us a sense of what that means, that, that scale, uh, kind of operations, the markets that you cover. So if you examine our business, we've got three large platforms in it. We've got a workforce management platform in which we have general staffing, professional staffing, and skill development. So in general staffing, we employ about 260 to 270,000 people among the largest. Um, it is the largest general staffing business in India. We have a professional staffing business in India, Singapore, and the United States. In India and in Singapore, we are, we are the largest general st- professional staffing company. In India, we have about 10,000 people. In Singapore, about 1,600, close to about 2,000 people in Singapore. Plus, we have in North America another 450 to about 600 people there, depending on which time of the year you're looking at that. So uh, that's the that's the landscape in our staffing business. In our training business, we train. We have a capacity to train between 30 to 40,000 people every year. These are basically kids who come out of high school in remote areas of India, which need who need training in let's say uh, emerging skills like uh, delivery, deliveries, uh, de- to be a delivery boy, to be an admin assistant, to be an assistant in a in a haircutting saloon, uh, early stage jobs. So it's a high impact business for us. Although the last two years has seen little or no training because of the pandemic. Then we have a facilities management business, an interesting business uh, where we maintain about 260 million square feet of space across India. We employ maybe close to about 50,000 odd people in that among again, uh, the top three to top four in India and that in that business too. So we maintain public utilities like railway stations, airports. We maintain public spaces like malls, cinema, uh, uh, cinemas, etc. We also maintain corporate offices, which is the largest part of our business, residential premises, and other place specialty cleaning services like hospitals, educational institutions, in both of which we may be among the largest in India. So that's in the facilities space. But that's classically that, that space classically is referred to as the asset maintenance space. So in that, in addition to real estate, we also maintain telecom towers. So there are about 400,000 odd towers in India. At one point of time, we used to have at an aggregate level, about almost 75,000 towers that we maintain. And that number keeps going up or down a little bit. So we're again the largest player in that space. We also maintain industrial equipment, large power plants, steel plants, uh, you know, cement plants, etc. We have about almost now 3,000 engineers in that space. Uh, we bought a company called Hoffenkons uh, about six, seven, about almost 10 years ago, in fact, right now. And that company was formerly owned by Transserve and before that by uh, Tyco in the United States. It was the largest in that in that space in India and, uh, comp- and a business that's doing fairly well. So uh, these are the two earlier businesses that we were in. And post the IPO, we got into customer lifecycle management through the acquisition of a company called Tata Business Support Solutions. It's essentially a BPO. 60% out of the business used to come from the Tata Group and the balance from outside. But now... You know the numbers are more even uh, in terms of what the Tata gives and and what um, in, in and what we get from outside the Tata Group. So that business is uh, maintains a customer lifecycle end to end. We have about thirty five thousand associates in that working full time. And on the back of that acquisition, which was a successful one, we went and bought a listed company in Chennai called Allsec, which manages payroll and also has an has a customer lifecycle business. So. Also, actually, is the largest payroll service provider in India. It does 2.6 million payslips in a month. And then uh, all, in that is about a million payslips in India itself. So the balance coming from outside India. And, uh, you know, also it turned out to be a good acquisition because we bought the company at about approximately 
270 rupees per share and the share is now you know three years later it's about almost 650 plus so uh, a good company uh, south indian company and uh, we're happy with the outcomes from that also we have investments in the digital space we bought monster which is among the top three job boards in india we recently raised about 20 million dollars of money in that at a valuation of about 100 million the company was bought at between 15 and 20 million or so so we've seen some upside in terms of the valuation of the company but uh, it has about 60 65 million resumes sitting on it so it's a large database of candidates that we interact with we also have q jobs which has which is uh, which does uh, uh, a market making model between uh, uh, job seekers and employers and connects demand and supply in the gray collar and the blue collar space so there we have about 2 million downloads and, and growing very rapidly. Uh, we also have uh, DigiCare, which uh, manages the after-sales service of appliances, telephones, etc. We have almost 5,000 customers that we deal with on a daily basis in, in DigiCare. Uh, again, that could be counted among the top three in India. Plus, we've got a couple of uh, other digital assets, the principal one in that being Taskmo, which is a gig economy company today. And uh, you know it has the potential to connect to almost about half a million gig workers at any point of time. So this is the scale, spread, and the span of what we do, Hari, across Quest. All right. I mean, uh, uh, wonderful snapshot of uh, several adjacent opportunities that you really captured along the way. Uh, now, also in the post-pandemic uh, scenario, hopefully we'll get to the post-pandemic scenario uh, through this year. Give us a sense of uh, the direction in which uh, all of this is heading. Sure. So... What began as a human resources business became a business services um, enterprise over time. Uh, what the pandemic has done, it, it, it's really accelerated the adoption of digital methods in businesses. And it's turned people more tech savvy and it's turned enterprises more towards tech than from people in terms of how they deliver the service that, they, that they're engaged in. So we see ourselves becoming a more digital company in this space. So Quest 3.0 is primarily about delivering what we do more with technology than with headcount. So while we grew headcount from, let's say, 120,000 people when at the time of an IPO to almost now about 410,000 today, uh, the headcount addition necessarily does not imply the growth of a company. You know, we also have to see in terms of what is the technology adoption, etc. So what we want to do in Quest 3.0 with the digital first strategy is to have automation in all our business processes that disintermediate the need for people. What does this mean at an everyday level? The first thing is that we need to have information available on a real-time basis. So how many people are employed, what their salaries are, which sites who's working, what their targets are. Uh, can, the, uh, can there be a, 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 a report on how much who's at, on how much which employee has done on the task that is assi assigned, etc. The second thing is that computing should be pervasive. We should be able to look at this information uh, wherever we want, at the client's premises, at our premises, on the uh, associate's mobile phone, etc. So it should be pervasive data. The third thing is that it should be device agnostic. It should be, we should be able to see it on a on a laptop, on a uh, on a desktop, on a on a piece, on a handheld, wherever in whatever form. There could be points of uh, delivery that is defined by electronic gadgets that we are only encountering as we go by, which includes. Uh, IoT-related devices. So all of this, we should be able to uh, give information on a real-time basis in, of a pervasive nature across devices. And lastly, the customer should come closer to us. You know, we should get the customer closer to us by giving them dashboards of everything that's being done with them. So if they need to be, 
uh, in the loop on information about any particular transaction that we are engaged in. Uh, it should be uh, it should not be required for them to make a call to us or send us a mail, but to access our information directly. All of this will happen only by the creation of APIs. APIs that go out from our system, link with client systems, and we're able to interchange data between our systems and theirs effortlessly and seamlessly. So that's really the the next phase of development of uh, of Quest, and that's where our uh, uh, our efforts are going towards. So when you get this effort to a level of maturity, uh, what is the objective? I mean, what is the opportunity that you're looking to capture by doing all these things? Well, yeah, two or three things. The first thing is that uh, we want more value that we can give to the customer. So if you're able to give more value to the customer in terms of uh, the type of transaction with the, that we're engaging with them, hopefully we'll carve out a little bit of that for ourselves and we our revenue should go up, not necessarily by, you know, just by, by increasing geography or by the number of things we do in a certain geography. It's also by increasing the wallet share with each of our clients and by adding more, more value to each client. The second thing is that we have um, we have an internal norm of 20% return on equity in our company. And that's at the current level of evolution of the company. If that has to become 25%, let's say in three years time, that change will happen not necessarily only by increasing the geography or by doing some inorganic growth, but also by changing the way we deliver our services to our clients and creating more value in an existing service that we deliver. So through this process, we think that there is a possibility to increase margins by about, let's say, 2% at least over the next, let's say, two years, two, two to three years of time. And that's something that is important for us to see how we can increase margins. The third thing is that, you know, increasingly as you become more embedded in a client system, your stick, your stickiness with the client is much is much larger. We work with almost about, uh, you know, 250 to 300 odd Fortune 500 companies, the top 500 companies in India. So as those companies grow and as their market share increases and as our wallet share with them increase, we see a revenue and profitability growth for us happening ourselves. So that is, I think, going to be driven largely by the amount of technology we have in our business and not just by account management or headcount supply. So that's really the the outcome of what we want to do through the digital-first approach of Quest. You already have uh, considerable momentum you know, uh, you know, in the data that you get you have a, and you're building, a, I would imagine, a platform that can pull together many of these things uh, in, in one place. Uh, you have a subsidiary that's looking at the gig economy and uh, India, as you know, is home to the one of the largest bases of developers. So uh, anyway, long question short, do you see yourself uh, becoming a place where you can match make uh, people like uh, uh, software engineers and companies and other maybe white collar jobs as well uh, as you go along? And uh, over a period of time, do you see that uh, you know, the, the individuals, the consumers also becoming a source of important revenue for you? So uh, two or three things are happening in the market as we speak. The first is that the composition of the workforce is sort of changing over time. Previously, we defined the workforce in terms of blue collar and the white collar. You know, classically that developed from the industrial age, so to say, of people in the manufacturing shop floor and people who are supervising them. But that is sort of changing recently. The first thing is that you've got a gray collar component right now, which is basically the uh, e-commerce related workforce that's developed the gig economy, etc. Then you have a brown collar, which is, you know, people who work uh, on mechanical devices, plumbing, electrical uh, related work, etc., who are available 
on a on a gig basis connected by demand and supply through uh, internet systems so that's the brown collar so then you have the classical white collar which is supervisory workforce and then the blue collar which is the manufacturing and the shop floor related people you also have what is a fifth category what we call the orange collar people who work in high tech firms you know people who work in let's say the netflix the googles the amazons people who are problem solvers uh, who are solving problems creating solutions for let's say large scale uh, population scale issues that exist and also through only the use of technology creating business lines and revenue lines uh, which are scaled rapidly and can be taken across multiple markets so that's sort of the that's one dimension of change that's happening of the nature of the workforce the second dimension of change that's happening is how do people work so people work you know today if you look at uh, the workforce post pandemic about 50% of the workforce cannot be taken away from offices they have to still work in offices about 30 to 40% can work in a hybrid manner work two days in an office three days from home or from wherever they want with but with limited contact and they also make site visits so they visit clients and they have meetings with other people that's necessary about 10 to 15% of the total workforce today can work entirely from home and uh, that's been a, a large change that the pandemic has brought, brought upon the workforce system worldwide so this uh, this initiates a, a change in the thinking process about how you manage your workforce and sitting on top of these two developments is contractual arrangements previously like my father worked with one company he had one boss and one job all his life but you know all of us will know in our generation that we work across at least 5 to 6 jobs across a 30 year career span and uh, so it, it, uh, add to the number of jobs you change is also the fact that you could work on a permanent basis you could work on a temp basis you could moonlight you could do a gig basis so there are multiple forms of uh, employment and legislation today and regulation is also beginning to uh, cover and provide an umbrella for these you know increasingly in india and the us it's already been covered in fact we 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 think that we there will be social security uh, availability for even uh, uh, gig gig workers so you have a change in the workforce you have a change in the way they work and you have a change in their contracting arrangements so if you if you address all of these three together you're going to have a situation where companies like us become all the more important because demand and supply are a little bit more amorphous now previously it was regular you knew if you advertised in the newspaper you could attract certain people today you don't know which type of employment for which type of which category of the workforce will you address this demand supply connection easily through what mediums so that's where companies like us come in we have to be market making in the model we have to use technology a lot we have to be specific in the way we hire people we have to do sniper hire and also you know companies don't have the time today to go through 10 interviews then select finally three find that two are, are not joining and finally you get one the effort to realization is very small so the ability to find precise talent in time frames that are very short and for contractual periods that can be very variable is really what's going to define the sort of business model that we'll take in the future okay uh, i'm going to switch a bit uh, uh, take us back to the beginnings of your career where did you go to college what was your first job so um so i finished college in 1990 i finished my post graduation in human resources from madras school of social work um uh it's a it's a school that produces human resource managers in the south of india and then after that i joined my first job in cottage in boys in bombay so i learned, i lived in vikroli which is an outpost in bombay at that time and and even now it's a little bit on the suburbs 
uh, Godrich has a huge plant there. I was in the refrigerators plant. I was a labor officer there, handling labor in terms of shifts, uh, productivity, safety issues, and industrial relations related matters. Uh, from there, I moved on to the SR group. I worked in the SR group for about five to six years' time. Uh, SR group was then setting up a steel plant at Hazira uh, on the brink of uh, working on a project to set up a refinery in Badinar. Uh, had one of the largest shipping fleets in India. They had about six US max carriers at that point of time. Uh, they also had um, uh, an emerging business in telecom with a Delhi license and uh, one large power plant at uh, at Hazira in, in Gujarat. Uh, great, uh, great project development uh, exposure in those days to see how large-scale projects were built in short periods of time and with promoters who took uh, who were inverted risk-takers. They, uh, they had the ability to think about scale and uh, and site and global scale projects uh, with uh, you know with 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 resources that they strung together very very different differently. Um, and then after that, I moved. I I went to college to study as a Shevning scholar. I was fortunate to be in a bunch of uh, with a bunch of guys who were terrific guys. And TV Narendra was currently the MD of Tata Steel. Tata Steel was in our batch. So was Adnan Ahmed, who was formerly recently retired as the MD of Clarion Chemicals. Uh, good, good friends, all of us. And then after that, I came back to join IDFC. IDFC was then uh, chaired. The board was chaired by Mr. Deepak Parekh, one of uh, the towering personalities in the, in the Indian corporate uh, firmament and uh, somebody who you can learn a lot from every five minutes that you spend with him. So I was fortunate to see a risk-taking side of uh, SR and an institutional building uh, characteristic of HDFC. Two, I think, uh, slightly different perspectives of building businesses and that... Uh, shaped my thinking on how to build a, a business as well. And then after that, in 1999 was when I was thinking about whether to become an entrepreneur or not. Uh, the first private equity funds were just being set up. There was Chrysalis, there was JP Morgan Chase. I went to two or three of them and then um, with a business plan, uh, JP Morgan, you know, over a short meeting, uh, they agreed to invest in our company, uh, which was then called go for careers It was actually uh, sort of the forerunner of Monster in a manner of speaking. It was an online job board. Monster uh, was uh, the then market leader, and they had also bought a career. Called, they were also bought a company called Jobs Ahead, uh, and then we wanted to build a company that rivaled that in uh, in the in that market. Uh, we decided, however, to do a pivot and go offline. So, Go for Careers became People One Consulting. It grew, it grew to becoming India's largest uh, HR services company by run rate by two thousand and three two thousand came calling to India. Uh, I was then maybe 30, 35, 37 years of age and uh, uh, relatively young to sell a business and to retire. So, but uh, it was a, uh, it's a fortuitous thing that we were able to sell it to the world's largest HR solutions company. So the, the ADECO that you find in India is the company that we sold to them. Um, I cut my teeth in terms of uh, seeing a global HR service company work at ADECO by participating in some of their executive meetings. I had to be in Zurich for all their quarterly sessions. So I got to see how other emerging markets work. And I realized through that learning period that uh, human resources businesses in emerging markets have very low gross margins and even lower EBITDA margins, obviously. EBITDA margins being between one and one and a half to two percent. So that was uh, when my thinking was shaped about not being only in the human resources space, but adding uh, people plus tasks which meant that you could go up from about two percent to about five to six percent which is effectively what we are and now we've layered this with a uh, it and customer lifecycle management business which delivers between 10 and 12 percent 
So that's really the evolution of how I went from being a working professional on the other side to becoming an entrepreneur and uh, building these businesses, Hari. Yeah, let's we'll talk a bit more about your entrepreneurial journey. But briefly tell us, what got you into personal management and HR in the first place? And through that corporate career, uh, what did you enjoy most? So uh, human resources was a little bit by accident. I have to confess it. Uh, not everything in hap- everything in life happens with a concrete plan and with definitive planning processes behind it. Uh, when I took this course, um, I had one. I had my uncle in the family who was a human resources manager. He went on to become the director and a board member of British Oxygen. So I got to see a little bit about how he manages people, strikes, you know, negotiations, and he was always in the forefront of uh, battling and managing people issues. So that sort of rubbed off on me as a as a kid, and. Uh, uh i took to this but i found that uh when i when i uh, when i joined the human resources space uh it occurred to me that the best human resource managers are not necessarily just people managers but they have to understand business they have to understand finance they have to be sales guys themselves you know you have to sell jobs to people you have to sell ideas to people you have to sell organization structures to people you have to understand strategy you have to define organizing structure and the neural system of a company by knowing what jobs got, get done where and then find right people for it. You have to compensate people well. You have to you know, have a risk-reward mechanism that works well. You have to have personal relationships that ride on top of all this that string people, uh, purpose and uh, organization goals together. So uh, over time, I realized that human resources is a complex job. It's not as easy as selling soap or shampoo or, or getting an op- a production line up. It's a uh, complex job because many things are amorphous. You can't define it in in uh, in um, in a regular manner. There's a there, there's a lot of learning that you have to do every day to understand changes in in technology, people, finance, etc. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the process of learning how to run an organization, of how to understand why an organization is successful when it is not, what are the factors that make it tick, etc. The missing part of this whole agenda was finance in a sense. You know, as a human resource professional, you never get trained on reading balance sheets, P&L, financial statements, understanding metrics, etc. That is something you have to commit over time to learn. And I think every entrepreneur, before you become an entrepreneur, should know finance, should know the ability to read, uh, you know, uh, sophisticated financial statements and react to them and to also, uh, and also, don't, without getting over-financialized in the way you approach work life, you have to you have to know about the impact of decisions and their financial uh, uh, and their financial uh, you know uh, dimensions uh, before you start taking all of these decisions. So that was sort of how um, I went about becoming an entrepreneur. I would say. But what uh, got you thinking about uh, being your own master, so to say, and uh, taking the risk of becoming an entrepreneur in the first place? So the first one was uh, freedom. You know, you, as an entrepreneur. Uh, your ability to take certain decisions, to take certain paths, to look long-term or short-term, to choose what products, areas that you want to be in uh, was a big deal for me. You know, the, the fact that freedom gave you the ability to, to do some things. The second thing is that uh, you have ownership for your life and your results because you are working under your own and your shareholders' uh, guidance of what you have to do. So... Uh, you have a you have a common thread with all of them, but uh, hopefully, I mean, there's a congruence in, in the way that they all go together. And you have the ability to generate outcomes from a process or from an effort level that is generated from within you and not from anywhere else. So you had uh, freedom and you had the ability 
to create outcomes that uh, you wanted to generate. The third thing is impact. You you can create impact, and you know, the older you get, uh, your your circles of impact start growing up. You know, start growing larger and larger. You know, when you're when you're a kid, you have your cl- classmates, you have your neighbors, you have people that immediately interact. When you get married towards the twenties, you have your in-laws, you have. Uh, kids, then you've got uh, uh, a work life, etc. But as you get older in life as an entrepreneur, you deal with regulators, markets, customers, investors, stakeholders, and your ability to to straddle all of this uh, post a challenge and a very, uh, and a very uh, delightful one at that, you know, and I liked it to be able to straddle all of this, etc. So uh, I kind of took to being an entrepreneur like um, a fish to water. I was happy with uh, the environment and the challenges that it threw at me. Uh, the impact, of course, was sizable. I mean, to be able to come from a middle-class family in Chennai and to build a large employment system gives you gives you a sense of satisfaction. That I think that uh, uh, you can't get in, let's say, selling soap or shampoo or cell phones elsewhere. So I enjoyed this whole process, and I think uh, the impact that it finally delivers uh, gives you the motivation to get up every day morning and then prepare for the next day at work. So so far. Uh to your mind or personally what have been the really big milestones of course the ipo is well known uh, fairfax's partner alliance is well known but maybe there are some lesser known ones which to you are personally significant uh, tell us about that so um, as you said the first important milestone is getting a marquee investor like fairfax uh, sort of the you know berkshire hathaway of canada and uh, gentleman runs it premat sir uh and is referred to affectionately as the Warren Buffett of Canada uh on on board with us a uh, tremendous source of inspiration and uh, you know uh in in all, in many ways has inspired us to become what we are today second one is of course the ipo 145 times oversubscribed the largest subscribed uh, ipo in india these were two big things but one point that uh, not many people have uh, you know picked up is that we came back to the market 13 months time in 13 months time and had what was called an ipp and we raised another 800 800 i think 70 crores or so so we raised uh, almost about 1200 crores of capital in a matter of 13 months and we went up from let's say about 300 crores of uh, net worth to almost about 2000 plus crores of net worth in a matter of about uh, uh, you know 24 to 24 to 36 months so uh, we expanded our equity base very rapidly and before the ipo we had a roe of almost about 26% so today 6 years after our ipo we're getting back to about 20% that i think is a significant milestone for us but if you look back some of the key milestones would be stuff like uh, our acquisition of connect which i think is a is a great company run by good people great pedigree with tata with the tatas being initial shareholders on the back of that we we bought another company called Altsec which was again owned 40% by Carlyle um, and then we bought another 34% uh, from open market and from the from the promoters of the company again a very solid company our capital allocation process you know if you look at just these two as examples we spent about 700 crores buying about uh, you know approximately 200 crores of ebitda so about three and a half times when our company is trading at uh, many times that so our capital allocation process at many stages has been an important milestone the second thing has been our uh, bench of leaders that we've developed in our in our company you know today if you want leaders for any business uh, my first option is look inside and uh, we will uh, for uh, for requirements that we will have 
uh, in the future or anytime, even if let's say we, we, we buy new companies from, uh, from time to time, our uh, supply of leadership will come from, in, from internal sources. And many of these people have worked with me for many years over periods of time and they've, or they've been first time recruits for a position after we bought a company. So the capital allocation, leadership uh, that we've grown here, and lastly, a return to shareholders, you know, our 20% return versus 15% of Sensex, I think has been the key milestones apart from the first two that we've, that we've delivered. That combination is that kind of the secret sauce. I mean, you've made some 23 acquisitions or something growing uh, Quest Corp. And, and yeah. you know, acquisitions, I guess, statistically uh, are fraught with uh, risks and not many succeed. But you've, you've built your company this way. What's the secret sauce? So, uh, sometimes I think it's because God is also a mallu that we get lucky with <laughs> we get lucky with a lot of these things, you know. So you can't take luck off from um, from your life. There's a lot of grace of God that works in in all of these things. You can plan a lot of things, but sometimes events just take you down another part. But that apart, I think out of twenty three acquisitions that we did, maybe between seventeen to nineteen of them are ones that we're very happy with. You know, stuff that we've uh, we've assimilated. It's gone to relatively to plan. Everything does not go precisely to plan, but relatively plan. And uh, uh, some others have overcompensated for the ones that have been, let's say, in the middle ground. About three or four of them have not gone gone well out of the out of the twenty three. But if you ask me, what is the secret sauce? I think there are two or three things that will define a good acquisition. The first one, obviously, is how much you pay for something, and you have that's an estimate that you have to develop. We've been um, very conservative. We have sort of value investors. We tend to play single-digit multiples for most of the companies we buy. Uh, we've never used a banker in our life. We've almost always done the deals ourselves. We only do friendly deals, Hari. We've never done anything hostile. We never bought one partner, put them against the other, etc. We've only done friendly deals. So all of this contributes to a proprietary deal flow that happens for us. The second thing is who you back in the company. So you bought it at a certain price. And hopefully when you bought it at a certain pl- price, you have a plan about what you want to do with it. For example, in Connect, when we bought the company, it was doing 55 crores of EBITDA. This year, it'll be closer to about 110 to 120 crores. So that's it's grown twice in a matter of about three to four years' time. And that's a, it's a nice stat, this is despite the pandemic that's there in between. So what you pay and what is your plan and how much it will do? And the third part is who are the people driving it? What, what sort of confidence that will, will, do you have in the leadership team that's driving it? So if you buy a company relatively cheap, have a good plan in terms of value accretion in the company and a leadership that uh, is that will be that drive. That's your best combination. And that's the secret sauce. Underlying all this, of course, is one factor that's important. What is the quality of the counterparty that you're dealing with? Uh, irrespective of the, all the documents that you sign, um, if ever you have to open that locker and pull a document out, you know, the document is then worthless, you know. So you should be able to sign something, put it away and not have anything to do with it in the future. So that's sort of the that's sort of the summary that we that we employ uh, in terms of a tactic as when we look at uh, when we look at acquisitions. Uh, and there's one sort of unwritten rule that I have. You know, when we're looking at acquisitions, the counterparty or the selling entity. Uh, one thing that we look at is are these people uh, folks that you like to take home for dinner? You know, because at home you want to take home for people. You would want to take people home of the type that you want to, you know, open your house to and, you know, and make them part of your family. So uh, that's a key test that I employ to see if these are people that I'd like to take up for dinner. And then that matters a lot in taking this decision finally. Yeah, awesome thumb rule, I think, for folks who don't understand finance like me. You know, if you're, if you're comfortable having them meet your wife and parents and children, then I guess 
you can make it work. Fantastic. Uh, so on leadership, uh, you, you spoke about it quite a bit, uh, about finding leaders uh, in-house. Uh, so you're looking back, what have been some of the biggest uh, leadership lessons that you've learned through your corporate career and uh, through being an entrepreneur? So, you know, <laughs> leadership, I think, starts essentially not with having um, a great strategy or an execution ability. I think it starts with having the ability to relate to people, understanding what the other guy wants, allowing the other guy to win a bit in your life also, you know, not just uh, you looking to win all the time. So, you know, leadership starts with uh, with making, uh, making the community win, making the community in the sense, who are the other people who work with you, your shareholders, and uh, also your, uh, you know, your, your customers, etc. Which is exactly why Quest today is also, our tagline is winning together. You know, of making, how do we get our stakeholders to win together with us? And that's, I think, been a big lesson in leadership for us. How do we get people to work together to win together? The second thing is that, uh, you know, uh, it's important how you manage your time. A great leader is very careful with his calendar. So, you know, that, and that uh, you, you have eight hours in a day. So actually, I begin my day every day. Uh, I kick off a day with two things. I have a small word of prayer, which takes maybe five, seven minutes, 10 minutes. And then I sit back and plan with my uh, secretary, what is my day going to be? You know, what are the meetings I would take? What are the documents I need? And um, uh, what is the follow-up set of actions that I need to do on meetings that I previously did? And this is a standard thing maybe for the last 15 years of my life. So also, leaders need to have certain habits. Uh, you can't be sort of a maverick and then hope. I mean, there'll be a few mavericks who, who do very well and who turn out to be uh, very successful and they do, but there'll be a small, uh, a small uh, minor uh, share of the whole statistic. The majority of people need uh, a work ethic and a certain set of habits that drive the way that they work. So you have to pick the right habits. You have to, you have to know what set of habits you have to imbibe and what uh, repetitive habits that you need to have to be able to succeed. And the last point is, I think fairness comes a lot in leadership. You know, you have to be fair, uh, not just in terms of commercial contracts, but uh, in a lot of things that you, what, what sort of a, a return on equity do you want in the company? Where is the balance between employee effort, their, their own, uh, uh, their own um, you know, compensation benefits, versus shareholder return. So th that sort of equitable positions, you have to start balancing in your mind. So these are the sort of things that make leadership work. Your ability to deal with people, your habits that you've got, uh, how you manage your time, and the sense of fairness that you can uh, create in your mind about various issues. Going from corporate executive to uh, founder of a, a small promising venture to chairman of a large listed company, were there anything? Uh, was there anything that you needed to unlearn along the way? So that's a great question. I think uh, many people will realize this as they take this similar journey across uh, from you know running a small organization to be becoming a multi vertical organization is the fact that you have to uh, you have to let go of micromanagement, and that's the one thing that I learned uh, very early on. That if you get into like in the in the early years, I remember at uh, IKEA Human Capital Solutions. Uh, which is now Quest. I used to even do a ledger scrutiny uh, on a weekly basis to see what are the payments we've made, what are the collections that we've received, where are the outstandings, or get into uh, specific branch level uh, impressed matters to see how much cash is lying in a branch and how much is unreconciled, 
where is the BRS uh, bank reconciliation statement at, etc. So a level of micromanagement we used to do. But by about 2013 or so, I realized that this is not going to work. I had also the advantage of seeing how Fairfax manages this business. You know, then they had about 40 billion of assets under management and there are about 40 guys in the office. So it was an incredibly large portfolio of companies and they had just 40 people. And I realized through the process that, you know, you have to pick what subjects you want to manage. So through my learning, I realized that there were only three things I wanted to do and which I stick to even today. The first one is capital allocation. The second one is uh, performance goal setting and review. How much money do you put in a business? Uh, when do you put it? And what returns do you expect in the business? And the third one is who drives that? What leadership do you have? Do you have? So j- just these three things. Everything else to me is business to be run by business leaders, to be done in markets, to be done in various offices, not close to us. So this process of unlearning was important to me very early on. Do not micromanage. And uh, the last point is, uh, you know, technology previously was related to office automation in the sense, you know, you had Microsoft Office, you had email, you had uh, uh, connectivity, you had, uh, uh, you had a few essential applications that connected people, transferred information and helped to take some decisions. But uh, over time, uh, that technology has become enterprise resource planning tools, you know, that became SAP type uh, uh, t- type um, you know applications that you have to develop in almost every functional area of yours. So we develop one for payroll, we develop one for uh, uh, human resources. We we have SAP running for ourselves. So enterprise resource planning was a key aspect of. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's, that was un- that was a learning element for me. I had to shed the way I, I ran an earlier business and uh, develop uh, resource planning ability at a larger scale in an inquest. So that's really the the transformative element of uh, of learning for me. Every business uh, at some point or the other uh, faces a crisis or adversity. Uh, tell us about uh, any times of uh, difficulty that you faced and, and, and what got you through that. So, you know, over a 15 year span, you obviously uh, have uh, many points of uh, crisis. Uh, you know, I, I remember in, 2000, uh, in 2011 or so, when we had the stub of some companies that we had bought to be uh, purchased out again as part of an earnout agreement, uh, our uh, Indian private equity fund was uh, closing down its first fund and they were not raising a second fund and therefore they were unable to fund a follow-on series in our company. We had to go out and raise money on an emergency basis and that's when we got Fairfax in. So that was a, a crisis point that we had to face to be able to raise money quickly. But we did that in, in about six months' time. We did that. We did that. The second time was when um, we were going for an IPO. It was the month of June in 2016. And, uh, you know, the Reserve Bank governor of ours was Raghuram Rajan. He had just resigned. And uh, uh, Britain had just pulled out of uh, the European Union. So that event together was commonly called as sort of an exit by many bankers. And uh, there was a feeling in public markets that uh, the Indian market could tank a bit and IPO should be pulled back. Some of our, we were advised by many people then not to go ahead with our IPO. So it was a you know go, no-go decision that uh, as management we had to take. And that was the decision I remember I took with a little bit of trepidation that we will still go ahead. And it turns out then later on that it went on to become India's largest IPO. So some of these moments uh, are testing moments, but uh, no, you pull through them. You pull through them with a bit of grit, a bit of luck. And, uh, you know, and then history says it's all all right after that. 
One of the things that I noticed throughout this conversation is that your numbers are absolutely at the tips of your fingers. I mean, of course, that shouldn't surprise anyone uh, given the cooperation that you run, but where does that come from, that ability? I mean, does it is it genetic, nature versus nurture? What is it coming from your parents? So uh, my dad was uh, a literature student and his number ability uh, was, so to say, uh, limited to his areas of influence, you know, in his job and his thing. He was never really a financial guy. My mother was uh, better with finance, I think. So she was she ran the she ran a tight house, and uh, she was good with her budgeting. And I could see the way she ran her finances. But I think this is you know when you run a company uh, up close and sort of personal, so to say that you're in it every day. You're seeing these numbers on a daily basis. You're interacting with people, uh, so you're you're kind of uh, with it all the time and. Uh, these numbers, in the, so when, you know, when you say that you, uh, some people have an intuitive way of decision making, it's because the numbers are always playing in their head. And they're sort of, uh, all these numbers are at the back of their head, they're connecting the dots, and all the time they're able to relate to the event that is uh, staring at them, and then take a decision. To many others on the outside, it seems intuitive that he's taking a decision. But that intuition is actually backed by a whole set of data that he's running in the background. So I think... Uh, for entrepreneurs, numbers come fairly easily, I think so, because, you know, they're always problem solving in their mind. An entrepreneur's essential job is to problem solve. And to problem solve, he has to look at data. He has to look at uh, uh, previous events. He has to look at uh, 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 the dimension of the future and how this will roll out in the future versus how it is today, what sort of resources is available. So you're computing all of these things in your mind. And uh, I think numbers will come to entrepreneurs. Also, I've seen for certain uh, Operating managers, especially some of the operating managers I've worked closely with, this becomes a rub-off. And then they become more number-specific. So I think any organization that is tuned to numbers, tuned to quantified methods of assessment, etc., uh, will be able to set itself targets which are reasonable and attainable at any point in time. So I think it's a way of life that you need to have, Hari, and that you know people pick up by the by as they, as they go along couple of uh, last questions and I have a uh, short rapid fire section. Uh, I'm always fascinated by how leaders deal with uh, failure. And I think today, a lot of startup founders in India as well would be very interested in that experience. If you look back, uh, was there anything that you look at as your biggest professional mistake? Uh, and how did you deal with it? What did you learn from it? So we make mistakes. We make mistakes uh, and we must make mistakes. I think every organization that grows will will have uh, uh, sort of, you know, at home, we used to have sort of a swear jar sometimes at home. My daughter set it up because sometimes at home, one of us used to swear a bit and she said, that's not good. And you put, you put a coin in every time, uh, every time somebody swears. So I did the same thing in, in my study in my, at, in my residence. I have a small swear jar for, not a swear jar, a jar that I keep in uh, where I drop coins when I make wrong mistakes, uh, wrong decisions. And decisions, you know, unless you start uh, knowing that you made a wrong decision and you catch back on that in some way, you have a good chance of repeating it, you know. So I think you should allow yourself to make mistakes, but not allow yourself to repeat it anytime. And some of these things often, when you have a, this jar, mistake jar in front of you, the coin jar, it tells you that you've been making this mistake for uh, in this situation. So we've made mistakes too in Quest. We've made one or two wrong acquisitions. We've made, uh, we made a mistake in getting into... Uh, uh, to into a large government business without the skills to know how to run a government uh, project run. Uh, luckily, we had good leadership which turned it around 
And today that uh, we built the Smart City project of Ahmedabad. Uh, that Smart City is today ranked as the number one project in India in that space in, in uh, across smart cities. Uh, so we've kind of uh, gotten out of that. But at one stage, it was very scary whether we could finish the project, how much we could collect. And today we've collected or provisioned almost all of the amount. So that sort of, uh, we, we learned from this situation. And now we say that we don't want to get into uh, projects which are time-based or outcome-based at a specific project timeline. If it's a continuing project with the government, we don't mind. So uh, these are some of the mistakes that we've made. So on this uh, point, I mean, what's the best way for a leader to you know, own the mistakes? Uh, and uh, what is the approach to owning uh, failures versus success? So, you know, um, the first point is, I think, if... Uh, I mean, I've met people who have a tendency to blame an environment, people, events, situations for uh, many things that happen. Uh, I think a good leader almost always takes responsibility for the outcomes in his life. So if you have to become a, a quality business leader, you have to pin yourself down and to know and to tell people that this was your fault and to and to address it and to come, be public with what was right and what was wrong. And uh, only that will force you to correct yourself in, in a future course of action. So to that extent, actually, in our last annual report, if anybody will go back and take a look, we've actually covered each of our acquisitions and told people which we were happy with and which we were not. So we want to now be uh, telling people what we think we're doing correctly, what we don't, what we're not doing rightly. And I think that will help us a lot in shaping our organization the way we think and also to keep farming our purpose in the right sort of direction. So to be able to take accountability for your outcomes and actions, I think the first sign of a, of a leader. Okay, few quick questions. Think of them as rapid fire. Just answer them very quickly. Don't think too much about them. Uh, first one, uh, one habit, first thing in the day that sets you up for the rest of the day. So I refer to that short word of prayer and uh, a discussion with my uh, colleague uh, Prathiba about what is the plan for the day and what are my tasks that I must accomplish. Uh, one piece of advice that you never got. Uh, was planning time. Nobody ever told me that planning your time was so important. And uh, that's, I think, uh, uh, le learned by myself along the way, but it's a big learning for me. One person that you look up to? My father when he was alive and even now when I think back about him, but uh, in business life today is Mr. Prematsa. Uh, one book that you would always recommend? Book? Yeah. Uh, Godfather by Mario Puzo. Uh, this has a lot about uh, the milieu of the, of the life and times it lived in. Planning, execution, little bit of romance, little bit of killing, little bit of everything. All right. Last question. Uh, one city that you would love to live in? I'd love to live in Goa. Easy life. Uh, great people that you can mix with. Uh, great food. And uh, it has uh, the seaside also, of course, that adds a lot to the city. It has a, it has a flavor that uh, many other cities in India can replicate. All right. Excellent. Uh, fantastic conversation. Uh, many thanks again, Ajit, for making time for this generously. I definitely hope to keep the conversation going. Enjoyed talking to you, Hari. Thank you very much. That was Adit Isaac of uh, Quest Corp. That's it for today's Startup Fridays edition. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, wherever you are, I hope you're staying safe and doing well. Uh, have a fantastic Friday and a great weekend ahead.